And I wonder, if I, if I asked you to name the most important um, threats to the witness of God's church, I wonder what you would say. Well, let, let me get it more specific. I wonder what, the, what you would say are the most important threats to the witness of this church, locally. Um, if I went round, quite possibly top of the list would be sin of one sort or another. You only need to look at how troubled the Catholic Church is at the moment as a result of um, uh, scandals of, uh, of sin amongst the leadership to know how much that damages the reputation of Jesus. Um, more theologically, gospel-minded people might uh, be tempted to say heresy, teaching errors about Jesus are, are deeply damaging and uh, they kill the church. But I want to add something else to that list um, this morning. Lack of forgiveness. That certainly, I think, is very, very high on Jesus' agenda in Matthew chapters 16 to 18. Just, just remind you uh, who've been... Um, uh, pursuing this uh, series that we've been looking at, we've actually been tracing the whole storyline of the Bible as part of what we've been doing over these uh, Sunday um, mornings, looking in particular at what the Bible says about the church. We saw um, uh, that the church is a community of God's people on the brink of eternity. The next big thing that is going to happen is that God is going to make all things new, says the Bible, create his new creation, it will be perfect. And in the meantime, the local church is, is a little outpost, outpost, extremely imperfect, but a little outpost uh, anticipating that final new creation. But we saw the story goes back a long way further than that. We started in the Garden of Eden at, at creation, where God made human beings in right relationship with himself and with one another but they sinned, they fell out of their relationship with God and they, they damaged their relationship with one another and the rest of the story of the Bible is about recovering uh, that. We saw the story developed towards Abraham where Abraham was promised that God would be begin that reversal through his family making them his family into a community of God's people who would one day bless the world. But then we saw that um, the law is introduced to, to, to sort of say, hold, hang on a minute. There's a big problem. Our ongoing sin uh, needs Jesus' death on the cross to pay for our sin. We need to be people who are committed uh, after that, to living um, and following Jesus Christ. The story in the Old Testament, though, continued to the prophets whose central message is God has not forgotten his promises. Though there are big obstacles to get over, God has not forgotten his promises. He is going to fulfil the promises he made to Abraham. And uh, so, this week, we uh, fill in the sort of final piece 
of the jigsaw, Jesus. Of course, we come to Jesus again and again every week. This week, though, we are focusing on Jesus. And in particular, we're going to be focusing on this passage at the end of Matthew chapter 18. But let's just flick back for a moment to look at Matthew 16, where this section of Matthew begins. In Matthew 16, verse 18, we see Jesus um, uh, saying something very, very significant. I tell you, he says, you are Peter. Peter's just confessed and said that he, is, uh, he recognises Jesus as the Christ. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what I want you to focus on is, I will build my church. This is the first time that Jesus has said that. In fact, it seems to be the first time that it's been said in the New Testament. And then over the next couple of chapters, the focus moves to the characteristics of the people of this, this new people of God that Jesus calls my church. What are those people going to be like? And um, uh, we're not going to be able to uh, justify it. I'm just going to give you a whistle-stop glance of what Jesus' answers are um, to that question. What are these people going to be like who form my church, Jesus' church? First of all, uh, um, he talks about uh, people who have a certain set of attitudes towards Jesus. They will be people, they will be disciples who will devote their lives wholeheartedly to Jesus. They will be disciples who know Jesus and interestingly who listen to him in the next section. They will be disciples who have learned to trust Jesus. They will be disciples who belong to Jesus. Um, uh, work through that, if you like, in your own time. See if you can work out why I said those things. But then in Matthew 18, it moves uh, on to something else. They will have a particular attitude to Jesus, but they will also have a particular attitude to themselves and to others, says Matthew. They will be disciples, for instance, who understand true greatness, this new people of God. They will be disciples who care about little people, little ones that Jesus talks about in, uh, in chapter 18. They will be disciples who faithfully resolve their differences, a whole passage devoted to dealing with differences that uh, Christians might have um, between them. But here's the one that we want to focus on. They will be disciples who forgive the end of Matthew chapter 18, interestingly, is the end of a whole big section. It's marked by Matthew saying, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And that, when Jesus had finished saying these things, is a repeated marker Matthew puts down that he's now moving on to something else. So the end of Matthew 18 is the sort of climax of this section of teaching, what will his church be like? And at that climax, Jesus says, they will be people who forgive one another. Look at how it's introduced by Peter, verse 21. 
Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter, frankly, is being relatively generous by the standard of of his times. The rabbis, we know, considered three times forgiveness was, frankly, enough. So, when Peter says, shall I forgive them seven times, he's, he's going well beyond that. But not far enough according to Jesus. Jesus says, not seven times, 77 times. In fact, he may be alluding all the way back to, a, to an incident in Genesis chapter 4. In, the, in that chapter, you find um, a man called Lamech, who was the seventh generation from Adam and Eve, uh, who swears that he will avenge any injury on himself 77 times. And so, right at the beginning of the Bible, we, we see this story, in fact, of the, the growth of vengeance to completely disproportionate levels, just seven generations from Adam and Eve. Maybe Jesus is saying, actually, my people are going to be people who have to completely disproportionately reverse that. He was to be avenged 77 times, you are to forgive 77 times. You are restoring what had gone wrong at the beginning of the story of mankind. Then he tells this parable. A parable which uh, says a number of things. But I want to pick out perhaps three big messages from this story that we uh, had read to us. First thing that Jesus is saying is that human beings are astonishingly inconsistent when it comes to forgiveness. The story is very simple. A king finds one of his servants who owes him a massive debt and he has pity on that servant and cancels the debt. Then the servant astonishingly goes straight out and ruthlessly bullies a fellow servant who owes him a much more minor debt, a hundred denarii. Refuses to have pity on him. And those who are watching see what's going on and are horrified, deeply distressed by the complete hypocrisy of this man. That that hypocrisy is is, is just littered all over the place uh, amongst human beings. You know, you will find great and admired leaders who can lead nations and be loved by nations who are appalling at home and hated by their family. You you will find millionaires who are misers. You will find some of the greatest ethical teachers in history who couldn't keep their trousers on. The um, the group uh, Green Day 
wrote a song entitled Walking Contradiction. They said very candidly, I have no belief, but I believe I'm a walking contradiction and I ain't got no right. Now beyond, beyond that, that, that sort of deep-seated hypocrisy and inconsistency that's so common in human beings, we also have another um, thing that we do, that, that this servant seems to do, which makes it even worse. We, we compartmentalise. So this servant, you see, had just not made the connection between the, 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 the generosity that he had just received and his behaviour now towards this other man. He, they, they, they were in two separate spheres, sealed off from one another, it seems. I mean, sometimes that can reach uh, extraordinary proportions. There's a case that um, is going through the courts um, uh, just, at, just at the moment, an extraordinary case of a man called Colin Howell. He was an apparently devout member of a Baptist church in Northern Ireland. But actually, in reality, 20 years ago, he killed his wife and the husband of his lover, faking it as a double suicide and it was recorded as a suicide. And then he went on, leading an apparently normal life for 20 years. Interestingly, until his son died suddenly and tragically and it seems that that seems to have triggered him. And he couldn't keep those things apart any longer. And he confessed to an elder in the church and is now in prison. Now, we're not as extreme as that, or at least I hope we're not. But we do compartmentalise. We just don't see the connection. We are inconsistent. And Jesus, in this parable, is wanting to break down that, that barrier that we put between between the way we behave and the way that God treats us. He wants us to become consistent people who behave appropriately in response to how God has treated us. And that's what he's going to do in this story. First of all, uh, this story makes the point that we are forgiven immensely perhaps more than we imagine. The debt that this servant owes is absolutely astronomical. Um, Jesus says 10,000 talents. Um, Literally, that would be probably billions of pounds sterling. But even there, to be honest... It's, it, it's, um, it's just the largest number, 10,000, that he could say quickly and easily, associated with the greatest unit of currency, the talent. So, he's really just using proverbially big number. Like if someone today said, a man owed zillions of pounds. That's what he's saying. And this servant um, comes to him... Um, um, really with a rather ridiculous request when you think about it. As he, uh, um, um, the servant, verse 26, fell on his knees before him, be patient with me, he begged, 
and I will pay back everything. You can't pay back everything, servant. You know, that would be like, like, like a banker in the recent crisis, despite the fact that he's got millions of pounds of bonus, saying, I'll pay back the billions that my bank owns. Owes. You can't do it. Now, there are plenty of people who, who at this point disagree with Jesus. Lots of people. You know, they get the point of the story. Here's a story about someone who owes, owes the master untold amount of debt. And, of course, Jesus is saying we owe God an untold amount of debt. And they say that's not true. They say, my, my sin is not so bad. Surely if I, if I lead a, a good life, I can pay the debt off. I may do some bad things, but I do some good things and it evens out over time. Well, that is to dangerously misunderstand our status before God. It misunderstands how, how great God is. It misunderstands and, and, and forgets how constantly we are doing things that ignore or offend God. Misunderstands the, rela- the nature of the relationship that God wants to have with us. The Bible says that, that, that the relationship that God wants with us is to be a covenant relationship like marriage. And it says, and it says, actually, to sin, therefore, against God is like committing adultery. And as the 16th century reformer John Calvin pointed out, no husband can go to his wife and say, my sin is not too bad, I was faithful to you on more days than I was adulterous. It's not the way how marriages work, it's not the way our relationship with God works. Every human being has to own up to the fact that we have an unpayable debt towards God. And that makes this master's response absolutely amazing. Because not, notwithstanding the sort of lameness and patheticness of the, the excuse, the master still has pity on him. He still cancels the debt. He still sets him free, says Jesus. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, let him go. It is the most extraordinary thing, you see, says Jesus. Despite an impossible and overwhelming debt, God forgives us. Indeed, that's what Jesus came for. He came as God the Son to die on the cross, to pay the ultimate price for our sin because he took pity on us. 
so that he could cancel the debt, so that he could set us free. You are forgiven. If you are here as a Christian here this morning, you are forgiven more deeply than than you can imagine, says Jesus. Think of how much you owe God and multiply it by 10,000 billion. And you're only just approximating to the debt that we owe. And he writes it off. We are forgiven much, enormously, massively. So, says Jesus, and here's the punchline. So, our lack of forgiveness is inexcusable. Actually, when, when you look at the details of this story, it's frankly, you know, almost physically painful, it's excruciating to see what this man does. He's a forgiven servant, just let off 10,000 talents of debt. And immediately, it seems, verse 28, the servant went out, he finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, let's be clear, a hundred denarii is not completely trivial. It's about three or four months' wages. Okay? So, so Jesus is saying, this, this is a real wrong, a, re, a real debt that he's owed. It's not trivial until you see it in the context of 10,000 talents. And then it just is. Jesus repeatedly makes the, 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 the point that, that as, as this um, uh, forgiven servant deals with the other man, he deals with him as a fellow servant. He says that four times. They're fellow servants. They're on a par with each other. You know, the master, who was far superior to the servant, was gracious and generous. Shouldn't the servant then, who is, who is no, not above the, this fellow servant at all, shouldn't he be even more gracious and generous? But no, he's not. The, the, the first servant, verse 28, grabs him. That word has a, has a sense of taking control over him. It's quite, quite closely related to, the, to a word for a ruler of a country. So the fellow servant sort of assumes this authoritative position over this other servant that he has no right to do and rather than actually being merciful, he is violent. He grabs him and starts to choke him. That's how the story's going. And he just can't hear what the, what the story screams at us. 
in, uh, in verse 29. Do you see that? His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. That was almost exactly what he had just said to his own master and received mercy. But this man has no mercy. He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Everyone around makes the connection. Do you see? When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. The king makes the connection more importantly. And something very shocking happens. Verse 32, The master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus is saying, Watch out, Christians. The stakes are really, really high. As you deal with people who have wronged you, so will God deal with you who have wronged him. So there is a sober, a shocking obligation on us to be people who forgive. In marriage, for instance, I often say I just didn't know I was a sinner until I got married. Living closely with someone just reveals your selfishness, your anger, your pride, your thoughtlessness. If there is no forgiveness in marriage, there is no marriage. Full stop. And families more widely. You know, the miserable feuds, horrible loneliness, deep bitterness that family members so often inflict on one another through unforgiveness. Indeed, when you start to examine it so often, it was trivial things, it was minor things that were retaliated against and then were retaliated back and the divisions just grew and grew and grew. Christians can't live like that. In Christian families, you see, Jesus is saying, they're not going to hold together because they're sinless. Yeah? Such families do not exist. Christian families will hold together because of forgiveness. Because God forgave much. They know they have to learn to forgive. In friendships, too. You know, someone described a little while ago to me her response to a disagreement that she had with a friend. She said, um, I unfriended her on Facebook. I wrote her a note saying, so long, have a nice life and I will never see her again. 
So easy. So arid. What if God treats her like that? According to this parable, perhaps he will. And then in churches. You see, one of the problems I think that churches labour under, or people in churches labour under, is the fantasy that it will be a sin-free area. It will not. The Bible never says that it will. Jesus here explicitly talks about fellow servants who owe quite significant debts to one another. He expects Christians to hurt one another, to sin against one another, to fail. And he expects them to forgive one another too. The debts we uh, owe to one another are absolutely nothing compared to the inestimable debt that God has cancelled that we owed him. So Christian, cancel your debts. The life of the church depends on it. Your life actually depends on it. It's not by accident that this parable stands at the climax, you see, of this section, which is asking, what is this new people of God that Jesus calls my church, what is it going to be like? If it does not have forgiveness at its heart, it will fail. Unforgiveness splits churches. It is, a, it is a cancer in the heart of churches. It is an infection which eats away at them. It's like, it's like, it's like having nuclear fallout absorbed into your bones. It's not immediately obvious, but over time, the cancers, the distortions, the diseases and the misery catches up on you. It is like an earthquake waiting to happen, to use an image from this week. The pressure slowly builds up and one day something triggers it and there is a catastrophe. Again and again and again, the Bible says, let no debt remain amongst you. Do not harbour resentment. It will screw you up. It will destroy you. It will destroy God's people. Forgive your brother, says Jesus, from the heart. Now, I know acutely that this raises all sorts of questions. Deep questions, profound questions. You know, I have had to sit and listen to people saying, should I forgive the man who sexually abused me as a child? Should I forgive the husband who left me for another woman when I was pregnant with our fifth child? 
Should I forgive the bullying work colleague? He drove me to depression and almost suicide. I know that there are deep pains associated with this subject. And I want to say that to you, actually, that scripture is more nuanced than you might think about that, about forgiveness. Our duty overall is to act as God acts towards other people. And God is quite clear that he only forgives repentant people. So I don't believe this parable is giving us an absolutely blanket obligation to forgive anybody, no matter what they've done and no matter what the state of their heart is. I think Jesus was quite careful when he said, and when he said, this is about forgiving your brother. For instance, mother of one of the victims of the seven, seven London tube bombings was uh, an Anglican priest. She actually resigned her pastorate after her daughter was killed in that, um, that bomb because she said she could not forgive the bomber. And now, I, I don't know her story and there may have been a wider crisis of faith associated that, with that. But as I listened to her saying that she couldn't, um, uh, she felt she couldn't stand up and say that she forgave the bomber and that fatally undermined her role as a priest, I thought, you misunderstood God doesn't forgive that bomber, that killer. He intended to do evil. There is no indication that he repented in any way. He carried out a despicable act. And there is no promise in scripture that such people will be forgiven by God. So there is no obligation actually on the part of a Christian to forgive that person. We put ourselves through agonies sometimes that we do not need to. There's a righteous sense of demanding justice sometimes. You can ask me more about that afterwards if, if you want. But let's come back to this parable. This parable though is talking about the debt we owe to believers. And we do owe a blanket debt to forgive believers because they are penitent people. We saw a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? If a person persistently and heinously demonstrates that they're not a penitent person, in 1 Corinthians 5, then actually the church has an obligation to say that person, you do not have a right to be called a Christian. But the assumption is believers are penitent people. They still sin. They still fail. They may actually take some considerable time to see it. But they are people who have come before the Lord and sought his forgiveness. He has given it to them. He has given it to us. And we owe them what God has given them to forgive them. I want to finish by telling you a story. It 
it's an extraordinary story of a, a true story of a man called um, Chris Carrier. He uh, was a boy, lived in Florida, and one day a, a slightly scruffy man met him at the school gate, telling him that his father had asked him to pick him up. So he went with that man, but that man actually was a disgruntled employer employee of his father. That man took um, a teenage boy to the Everglades and shot him in the head and left him for dead. Amazingly, he survived. Blind in one eye, but able to function. And though they identified the man that they thought had done it, they were never able to prove it. There wasn't enough evidence and he went free. Years later, Chris Carrier got a message from his assailant. He was now terminally ill in hospital and he had confessed his sin and he said he wanted to see Chris. Now, Chris Carrier was a Christian. He, he knew he owed the opportunity for that man to be reconciled to him. So he went. Man sought Chris's forgiveness and he gave it. He also shared the gospel with that man. And that frankly miserable man described in one article about him as a, as a pathetic scrap of humanity. That, that man that the world would overlook and hate became a believer, was reconciled to Chris Carrier. And in fact, um, Chris Carrier went on visiting him regularly until he died, shortly before he died. He said Chris Carrier was the best friend he'd ever had. Forgiveness is costly. It is really costly. But then it cost God everything, didn't it? 